This is a download from Ormskirk Christadelphians of one of our Sunday afternoon talks. A video of the talk is also available along with more downloads on our website, ormskirkchristadelphians.org.uk. If you'd like to join us in person, our talks take place at our meeting room on Moorgate in Ormskirk every Sunday at 1.45pm. We hope you enjoy the talk. Our theme is Men and Women of Faith. A specific subject is Joshua, whom we first meet in Exodus 17, verse 9. And there, we're not looking at it, we're just referring to it. There, we see him being instructed by Moses to choose men to go out and fight with Amalek, a people who had attacked Israel by coming up from behind them and assailing the rear of their columns. They were fighting for the water which Yahweh had provided them from the rock in Horeb. We know at this time that Moses was over eight years of age, and we understand that Joshua then, when he's first introduced to us, was about 53. He was one who was able to be a warrior leader, close to Moses, and trusted by him to lead out those men picked to fight for Israel at this time. They were not as yet trained soldiers, but they must have been vigorous and valiant men who were prepared to hazard their lives to defend their families and their people and so on. Joshua is the English form of the Greek word Jesus, which is in turn a rendering of the Hebrew word Yahshua. And it seems that Joshua's family had named him Oshia, which means salvation, and that Moses extended that name by adding the name of Yah, Y-A-H, as a prefix, not Yah means Yah is salvation or Yah brings salvation. So these names are not chosen at random, they are full of meaning, and they relate to the purpose of the eternal deity, whom we are permitted to call Yahweh, which means essentially, I will be who I will be. This indicates that the eternal deity is not limited in the way he can manifest or show himself, and ultimately, it has reference to the essence of the divine purpose, which is to fill this earth with his glory, and beyond that, to have that glory shown in a race of deathless men and women, people like us, redeemed from Adam's race. The incident with Amalek is recorded in, in Exodus 17, as we've mentioned, and it includes <coughs> the time when Moses stood on top of a hill, overlooking the battle area, with the rod of God in his hand. When the hand was raised, Israel was successful in the battle. But as he tired and could no longer keep his hand raised, Amalek prevailed. To counter this, his companions put a stone on him, a fairly large stone, obviously, so that he could be seated, and with air on his brother, and her, the son of Caleb, one of the leading members of the people, holding up his hands, Israel were unable to continue their success in battle until Amalek were discomforted, defeated and driven away. And this is an early indication, an early example of the way in which Yahweh dealt with Israel. He was ready to support them, ready to help them. He gave them victory here, but they had to play their part. They were not allowed to sit back and watch. Let's see what God will do for us. They had to be involved. In the past, I've heard several comments which indicate that Moses was a successful military commander for Egypt. 
but I've not been able to find any direct evidence of that comment. I do not decry it, because it seems probable to me that a strong, intelligent and active man, close to the throne as Moses was, remember he was known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter, adopted, yes, but he was known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He didn't accept that, but that was the, the way he was seen. He would have been trained in military matters as a thing, of course. In Acts 7, verse 22, Stephen states that Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and in deeds. Bullinger comments that this would include the mysteries of the Egyptians' religion as education was in the hands of the priests. Ah, fair enough. <coughs> but my Bible dictionary, the new Bible dictionary, in relating matters affecting Moses, his early life, comments that princes were given a tutor, usually a priest or a retired military officer close to the king. Thus it seems likely that Moses' education would have included instruction in military matters also. Beyond that, the same Bible dictionary in commenting about Joshua and the matter of Amalek relates that Moses chose Joshua as his personal assistant and subsequently gave him command of a detachment sent to repel Amalek. And it goes on to refer to Moses appointing Joshua as his successor. It was actually God who did it, but Moses was the intermediary. Successor to the military leadership of Israel. And that conclusion, that might seem stretched when we actually read the passages in Numbers 27 and in Numbers 34. But if we look further and look at Deuteronomy 31, which deals with the conclusion of Moses' life of service, just prior to his death, it is clear that Joshua was picked out as his successor. And that's, of course, the message that we read in Joshua 1. His successor, and that it would be his task, not Moses, Moses is off the scene now, his task to lead Israel over Jordan and into the land promised them. And it's also clear from a wider reading of the scriptures that this movement would not be unopposed by the then inhabitants of the lands. They were going to fight, fight as hard as they could despite knowing what had happened to other opponents. Now we know at this time, Israel had something over 601,000 men of above, 30, above 20 years old. Men able to go out to war. That's a lot of people, isn't it? A lot of men. Can't just remember the number now, but you're looking at probably 40 or 45 divisions of the British Army, a division being about 15,000. Now we ask ourselves, how would this motley host, and they were that, they were a mixed multitude in a way, how would they be led and controlled? Moses would have had a natural air of authority about him, wouldn't he? In consequence of having been brought up in Pharaoh's court, 40 years he was there, and as we suggest, having had military training. He would know how to command, how to order, how to lead large numbers of men, and it would be surprising if he did not pass this knowledge onto the man Mark added as his successor. Now, those of us who undertook national service, and there's one in the audience besides me, I know that, will remember, and that was in our youth, 18, 19 and so on, would recall how quickly a host of reluctant young men, I didn't want to be there, and I'm sure Al didn't, we had other things to do with our lives, but we were called up, we were conscripted. How quickly that group of reluctant young men 
were licked into a reasonable shape by skilled drill instructors. In eight weeks of pretty intensive training, youths with no previous training can be transformed into men who can march in step, who can turn to the right or the left, who can change pace of the march from slow to quick and to double, double the normal speed, that is, 120 steps a minute, double is, all at the same time, and can change step on the march and about turn, all on the word of command, and all at the same time. They can similarly be taught how to look, how to shoot, how to look after their personal weapons, and how to look after light unit weapons like Brengles and so on. So in that brief time, even green recruits can be brought almost, and in extremis exactly, to a point where they could be take, taken into action and formally engaged in battle. Apart from extremis, of course, that would require, beyond the eight weeks' training, a further short battle course. Thus we can speculate that Moses would have been picking out likely men who could be organised to lead Israel in battle and then giving them the basic instruction in what they needed to know to serve as warriors. And after some weeks, such men could train other men, so that before long Israel would have an army of several thousand or many thousand able to go out to war. But we must not forget that their salvation lay not in the arm of flesh, not in the size of the army and its valour, etc., and the skill the training gave them, but in their God, Yahweh. If they were faithful, he alone would give them victory. But they had to be willing to do their part, as we said previously. So we return to look more closely at Joshua, the son of Nun, who was of the tribe of Ephraim, the tribe which Jacob had said in round about uh, Genesis 48 would become a great nation. Yet at the time of the Exodus, they were the second smallest of the tribes in number. But in that number was a remarkable leader who was to prove an able successor for that great man Moses. Our theme is men and women of faith, specifically Joshua as an individual. We have said that at the Exodus, he was about 53 years old, which we would reckon now as being late middle age, maybe nudging up towards old age. But as we learn from Joshua 24, verse 29, when he died, he was 110. So that when the Exodus began, he would have been less than half of his final age. So instead of being close to entering his old age, as we would think today, he would be the equivalent of an under 35-year-old in present arrangements. Really, he would be in his prime, physically and mentally and so on. And those extras he would get in due time would have been very valuable in his learning of what was needed to lead Israel. We have assumed thus far that Joshua was indeed a man of faith. He could not have been otherwise, could he, to have been used by Moses as a personal aid and then as the commander of an independent action, away from Moses' immediate control. But what can we produce as actual evidence that Joshua was indeed a man of faith? <coughs> we can cite the modification of his name from Oshia to Yahshua by Moses. That's a starting point, certainly. But what else is that? Before we look at the biblical evidence, we can pose a question. Would Moses, great man, Moses who had been carefully selected by Yahweh and given entirely the right training, twofold, to undertake that stupendous task of leading something like 
two million people out of bondage into the land specifically chosen for them by the eternal creator. And he had two sessions of training, hasn't he? Forty years with the Egyptians, forty years as a shepherd in the wilderness, a complete empty, that made him ready in Yahweh's eyes. Would he not have had the ability to assess men accurately? And we recall that he'd been trained by some of the leading men of his day. Not obscure priests in some back corner, but the brightest in the world, carefully chosen for the task of training those young princes close to the Pharaoh. They want only the best. We remember when, when Nebuchadnezzar took Daniel and his three friends prisoner and carted them off to Babylon. They were bright, amongst the brightest in Israel. And they were trained by the Chaldeans, the brightest in Babylon. Pharaoh used the same sort of system. And he had these trainings being from being a child, perhaps only a few years old. So he had some 15 or 20 years of training with the priests and with the military officers and so on. And then he'd be turned loose to learn further lessons in his early 20s, but with an older mentor to offer guidance when needed. So by the age of 40, he was at the height of his powers, humanly speaking. But though he then felt ready, Stephen tells us, Moses believed that Israel knew. He was the man picked to lead them out of bondage. He wasn't ready. He had to flee when he'd killed the Egyptian overseer. And Yahweh knew that he wasn't ready. So he needed a further period of training under the hand of Yahweh for another 40 years. And then Yahweh knew he was ready. He was then fully prepared, chosen for the task of taking Israel from bondage into the land promised to their forebears. And then Moses had a different outlook. He did not consider he was the man for the job. Send somebody else, he said, I'm not ready. I've not got a quick tongue. He came up with several different reasons why he shouldn't be chosen. And Yahweh became a little bit irritated. So we know that by the time he, he did start leading Israel, he was modest, even perhaps somewhat self-effacing. But he could lead Israel, because Yahweh had made sure that was the case. And he gave him a mouthpiece, didn't he, remember? I can't speak, I'm not an orator. Your brother can speak. Aaron's on his way to meet you. I'll tell you what to say. You tell Aaron, Aaron will, will do the same. So do we not think that such a man with about eight years of preparation would not be able to see the essential value of other men, especially those who were to be his close aides and confidants? Moses would have sniffed out the fakes quickly. So his choice of Joshua indicates that that younger man was indeed a man of faith. And we mustn't forget either something that was said to Moses and he passed it on. He was a very special type of the Lord Jesus Christ. He comments in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 18, that God would raise up a prophet to Israel like unto me, like unto Moses, and him the people would listen to. He's speaking there of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that he did not need men to tell him of other men. He knew what was in man. And he could read their minds. He could read as they muttered one to the other, what they were muttering, especially the scribes and Pharisees, what they were muttering about. He knew what it was all about. So do we think that with such a man as the Lord Jesus, as a comparison to Moses, Moses 
would not understand what was going on. He was a man of considerable importance in the purpose of God, and one in whom the Spirit of God was present. Thus he was well equipped to discern the value of other men and women. And we can in contrast therefore be satisfied that Joshua was indeed a man of faith, which will be demonstrated in the scriptures shortly. Well first let's just define for ourselves, remind ourselves in some cases, just what faith is. We turn up Hebrews 11, verse 1. It's a fantastic chapter, is this in Hebrews? It tells us a lot about various things, but it's telling us about faith. And it tells us exactly what faith is. Now, faith is the substance or the ground for confidence of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now, what does this mean? Well, before I examine the passage in detail, let's establish what the word faith means in our language. Look at our, one of our dictionaries. I'm using the Illustrated Oxford Dictionary, and we find this definition. Faith, first of all, complete trust or confidence. Secondly, firm belief, especially without logical proof. Thirdly, religious belief. And fourthly, duty or commitment to fulfil a trust, promise, etc. And that word is based on the Latin word fides, F-I-D-E-S. The Greek word, which is used in the Old Testament, and the New Testament rather, is the word pistis, P-I-S-T-I-S. And that means, first of all, the conviction of the truth of anything, belief in, or conviction or belief respecting man's relationship to God and divine things. Secondly, conviction that God exists and is the creator and ruler of all things, the provider and bestower of eternal salvation through Christ. Thirdly, a strong and welcome conviction or belief that Jesus is the Messiah through whom we, any man, can obtain salvation in the kingdom of God. And fourthly, a belief with a predominant idea of trust or confidence in God or in Christ springing from faith in the same. Now these definitions are helpful in understanding what we read in Hebrews 11. We thus understand that faith is complete trust and confidence in Yahweh, that what he has promised he can and will deliver at the right time. Just underline that, at the right time. Not when we want it, maybe, but at the time that's suitable in God's purpose. Now, this confidence and belief is the substance of what is hoped for. The ground of our belief, the Greek word is the word hypostasis, which is used of title deeds in the papyri it thus indicates the basis of inheritance whilst evidence means proof of things not seen what do we hope to inherit we'll look at that in a little while Hebrews 11 is devoted to giving examples of men and women of old people of note in their own time who demonstrated their faith by their conduct we learn of Abel for example in verse 4 who offered that which pleased Yahweh he brought of the firstlings of his flock. Why? Because he had faith in the matter that was happening and understood the background to the offering. He knew what God wanted and he knew why he wanted it. He knew where it went back to. It pointed back to the sacrifice when his mother and father had first disobeyed and needed to have their sin-stricken nature covered by an animal skin. Cain, his brother, his older brother, offered what pleased him. Oh, this will do it's the best I can deliver but it wasn't what was required by Yahweh and thus it was rejected 
In verse 6, we see the statement that without faith, it is impossible to please God. We emphasize that word, not difficult, not hard, impossible. It cannot be done. We cannot please God without faith in him. Because he that cometh to God must believe that he is, that he exists, and beyond that, that he is a rewarder of them or those that fear him and diligently seek him. With these thoughts in mind then, let's have a look at the demonstrations of Joshua's faith. We saw in, in our reference to Exodus 17 that Moses commanded Joshua to lead a detachment of Israelites out to fight Amalek. Whilst, Joshua, whilst Moses overlooked the battle area and raised his arms to Yahweh seeking help. But even when the tide turned, because Moses was getting tired and his arms dropped, arm dropped, and the battle was going against Israel, Joshua didn't turn and run and flee. He stayed fighting. He continued in battle, steadfast in faith, waiting for the tide to turn, and it comes with Moses' arms being raised. Secondly, in Numbers 13, we find that the children of Israel had reached Kadesh Barnea in their wilderness, nearly finished. They were nearly there. 40 miles or so, south from the edge of the land of Canaan, which was their objective, that had been promised them. And Moses there was commanded by God to send out men to search the land to confirm what they could see. They'd been told it was a land flowing with milk and honey. And this command came because of a request from the people to that effect. Send some out to spy down. So 12 men were picked, one from each of the 12 tribes. And these men were not just any old Tom, Dick and Harry. They were amongst the princes of the tribes, the rulers of the tribe, not the top man, but near that, the son maybe. Uh, and as, as a result, they were sent out. Joshua came from Ephraim, as we said, and Caleb, who was a, who was a Kenizzite, that means he was a Gentile by birth, came from Judah. They'd been associated with Judah for several generations, we gather. They went out, this group of 12, and they spent 40 days on this reconnaissance, returning with the report that the land was indeed fruitful. And they brought with them figs and pomegranates and grapes, not just a handful of grapes, but a cluster, a branch laden with grapes, sufficiently heavy to be found to walk them in to carry on a pole between two men. That meant they wouldn't get damaged and the weight was distributed and so on. So they came back and they showed the quality and the abundance of that which the land yielded. All well and good. But they said, because the cities were protected by walls and the people were strong, besides that, we saw the children of Anak there, then Israel would not be able to catch this land. The children of Anak were men of great stature. We suspect that they were connected in some way with the family of the giants to whom Goliath belonged. We're not sure of that. We just put that forward as a suggestion. But they were big fellas, really big fellas. Goliath, we know, was six cubits and a span tall. What we don't know exactly is just what the, the inches are of those things, a cubit and a span. The length of a cubit is uncertain because its measurement varied. It's from the, the tip of the middle finger to the tip of the elbow. And of course you realise my cubit, because I'm short in stature, will be smaller than Chris's, who's a lot bigger. So there's a variety there. And a span 
was the span of my hand. When I was younger, I could span an octave and two. That's clearing nine inches, maybe even touching ten. The smallest cubit I've read of was 17 and a half inches, and the biggest, 25 inches. That's a fair difference, isn't it? Whilst a span could be 10 and a half inches, but you may remember a man called Frank Swift, those who are football fans will remember him, goalkeeper of Manchester City in England, he had a span of 13 and a half inches, big enough to hold a football in one hand and to take it in one hand as well. That's a fair difference. But it's thought that the general span was 10 and a half inches. So Goliath could have been as small, if you like, as 9 foot 7, at least, or he could have been over 13 feet tall. We don't know quite which. Whatever his height, he was too tall for King Saul. Remember Saul? Big man himself, perhaps as big as 7 foot 6. Was nothing like courageous enough to go and face Goliath. Not facing him, he said, he's too big for me. <clears throat> now, with men of this size in the towns, when the spies spied out the land, it is not a surprise to find that Israel as a whole were intimidated. And so they resolved to appoint a new captain to take them back to Egypt. We had properly in Egypt, we had plenty of stuff to eat garlics and onions and fish and meat and so on. Cucumbers, and various other things. Joshua and Caleb were men of great faith. They were confident that their God would overcome the locals. And we find their comments in verses 7 and 9 of Numbers 14. They said that if Yahweh delights in us, then he will bring us into this land. Only do not rebel against him, nor fear the people, for they are like our bread. Boone's comments. Now this equates to like our manna, which is the only bread Israel had during the wilderness wandering. Now you may recall that each day, apart from the Sabbath, the people of Israel had to leave their tents early to collect the manna sent by God. They collected roughly two quarts. No, roughly four pints. About that much. And if they collected more, it didn't make any difference. All they collected turned out to be sufficient for each family. But if they collected too much, it bred worms and stank. But on the Sabbath day, they didn't collect any. They collected two lots on the sixth day, and the second lot kept to the Sabbath day. So there was more than one miracle involved there. The manna was hard. They turned it into wafers, they ground it and turned it into wafers, and it tasted like wafers uh, made with honey. But if they left it standing with the sun playing upon it for too long, then it melted and it disappeared. Thus Joshua and Caleb were telling their fellows, so would their opponents melt away if only they would trust in God. Keep that in mind. The outcome was that the people wanted to stone them. Well, we want to go back to Egypt. They're drawing us in further into this problem. And that caused Yahweh to tell Moses, essentially, step aside, and those with you step aside, and I'll wipe them out. And I'll make of you a greater nation than this lot. Moses interceded for the people. Yahweh accepted intercession and made what we can see as the bottom line statement regarding his purpose with the earth and mankind upon it. Verse 21 of Numbers 14 tells us, As truly as I live, just think about that, as truly as I live, nothing greater could be said. Nothing else lived as Yahweh lived. 
Nothing as it always been, as Yahweh had always been. As truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of Yahweh. And that assembly is extended and expanded in Isaiah 11 and in Habakkuk 2, in each of which we can see that when the earth is filled with God's glory, that glory will be known essentially by intelligent beings such as us who will have been changed to share the nature now held by Yahweh and the Lord Jesus Christ. They'll be known and they'll show the glory. Numbers 14 goes on to declare that this complaining generation, we might say now this morning lot, virtually all who had left Egypt as adults, would die in the wilderness as they were then condemned to wander until 40 years had been completed. Another 38 years and some months they were condemned to wander. And instead of them being taken into the land of promise, their young ones, their children, who they said, whoa, you brought us out and they're going to be a prey in the wilderness. Yahweh said, those will not be a prey. They're the ones I will take into the land. Your carcasses will fall in the wilderness. So the faith of Joshua and Caleb was thus signally demonstrated here in this incident, which happened in the fifth month of the second year since they left Egypt. And in verse 30, we can read the comment that those two, of all the adults, there's a question mark there, mind you, because some, uh, some feel that the, as the priests weren't so numbered, they might, some of them might, might have entered the land. But for certain, we know that these two were allowed to enter. Joshua and Caleb, both men in their full maturity then. Keep in mind that remark about the bread and the manna because we'll return to it shortly. So that's the second demonstration of Joshua's faith. It was demonstrated again when he took over from Moses 38 and more years later. You may remember that because of a failure to obey Yahweh exactly, we fear for Moses, but we understand what was going on, a failure brought about by the repeated stress of dealing with a very difficult people, people who, when it's all going well, great, we're great. When it wasn't going so well, what have you done to us? You, you brought us out here to get us all killed off. And Moses had that almost on a daily basis, certainly repeatedly. Moses got carried away and didn't obey what Yahweh's instructions were with, with one particular matter, exactly. And because of that, he was not allowed to enter the promised land at that time. The penalty of failure was severe, but only temporarily so, and it was softened by the gracious mercy and compassion of the eternal deity. In preventing Moses from entering the land of Yahweh, of, of uh, Canaan rather, Yahweh was upholding his own righteousness and his own justice. Exact obedience was required from a man so privileged as Moses was. But he didn't just blot him out. He took him up Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah, which overlooked the Jordan Valley near Jericho. And there he was shown by Yahweh all the land from Gilead to Dan, all up to Naphtali and Ephraim, that was right up to the northeastern corner, Judah onto the Mediterranean, right there across 50, 50 miles or more, and down into the south, into the Negev, and the plain of Jericho unto Zohar. So he was given a clear sight of the whole of the land which his people were going to occupy. There is in this account a clear view of the grace and mercy of the eternal deity. He gave his faithful servant, now 120 years old, a fantastic vision of the land which he would not then enter, couldn't enter. 
but of which he will be the inheritor in days to come. And after this, Moses fell asleep. In a good old age, but without expressing the full rigour of old age, his eye was not dim, nor did his freshness, was his freshness abated. He was still in vigour. He was then buried in Moab by Yahweh. Nobody knew where he was buried. He'd been given the ability to see more than 50 miles to the Mediterranean coast and the best part of 100 miles up to the northeast of Naphtali and down a similar distance, perhaps 50 or 60 more miles, down into Negev. All the land that Yahweh was going to give them, he'd been able to see. And then he fell asleep. Thus God allowed him to see the land to which he brought the people and which he would inherit in a time still future to us. Yahweh then appointed Joshua, as we've read in Joshua 1, to lead the people into Canaan by crossing Jordan, which is another example of Joshua's faith. He was told he was what he had to do. He was to go over this Jordan unto the land which Yahweh was going to give them, and then follow several verses of Joshua 1, giving, giving him specific encouragement for the task ahead. Verse 5 says, As I was with Moses, so will I be with thee. I will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. He was told to be strong and of a good courage. He was told to observe to do according to all the law given through Moses. That's the Ten Commandments and more. He was told to keep the book of the law, not to let it depart from his mouth and to meditate upon it day and night. Thus he would have good success. Nor did Joshua hang about because we read that having been told these things then commands all the officers of the people Get ready. Prepare the people for in, get your victuals ready for in three days we're going to pass over Jordan. But before crossing Jordan, he sent out two men to spy out the land, who was specifically to spy out Jericho itself. Now Jericho was a fortified city, as you probably know. And their task was to assess the place, see what's going on, see the strength of the place, see what the people are saying, get an idea of their morale. They got into Jericho. They went to an obvious place, a place where men would, would resort without much notice, the, the house of Rahab, a local harlot, and she hid them. Before leaving, she hid them from the, the king's officers and said, they've gone, they've, gone, gone, they've gone somewhere else, off after them. So they went, and then she brought them out. She hid them under the flax on the roof, which was then prepared, being prepared for being used. And she told them, that the people of Jericho had heard how Yahweh had dried up the, the Red Sea nearly 40 years before. And now he had defeated for them Sihon and Og, two of the Amorite kings had been destroyed. And Og was one of these big fellows, a man of great stature. Don't know how big he was, but he was one like the giants, which had frightened ten of the twelve tribes. And Rahab then told them how upon hearing these things, then the hearts of the people of Jericho did melt. Their courage disappeared. And we can easily imagine how Joshua and Caleb felt upon hearing that news. They were fully vindicated. What they had said 38 and more years before, come with us and we'll succeed because God is with us. They were right. The people were wrong. So Joshua led Israel across Jordan. He took and destroyed Jericho as commanded the archaeologists who led the exploration of Jericho in the 1920s, I think it was 1927, and I can't remember his name, it was either Professor Stephen Langdon or Professor Garstang. Whichever it was, 
who was a neighbour of a brother you'll have heard of. R.A. Overton, who lived in Rugby. And this professor brought him a box, like a big matchbox, of corn salvaged from Jericho. He'd been there since 1450, whatever the date was. And these, whoever it was, reported that he had found the city systematically burned, but not systematically looted. So we know that Joshua had ensured that Yahweh's commands had been followed, apart from Achan, been followed, and they sought to do that which Yahweh had commanded. But they failed, did Israel, in that they did not drive out all the former inhabitants. Some they failed to get rid of for one reason or another. And this did provide repeated trouble for them in years ahead. Joshua remained a faithful man throughout his life, as indeed did Caleb. He was about 93 when he took over the leadership of Israel, round about that, maybe a bit, bit older, following the death of Moses. So he spent the remaining 17 years of his life leading Israel as they occupied the land. And in Joshua 24, verse 15, as he's coming towards the end of his life, in his last few months, he challenged Israel regarding their service in Yahweh. He reminded them of the great things they God had done in giving them the land promised. He told them that they had taken possession of a land for which they had not laboured. They had taken cities which they had not built. They had taken control of vineyards and olive yards which they had not planted. That had all been given to them by their God. And then he urged them to fear, which includes the meaning of revere, and to serve Yahweh in sincerity and in truth, and to put away the gods which your fathers served, that's from a long time ago, and those of the Amorites. And then comes the challenge. If it seemed evil to them, he said, to serve Yahweh, then choose who you will serve, other gods or Yahweh. But as for me and my house, we will serve Yahweh. Now this scene was enacted in the closing months of, of Joshua's life. Thus we can see that he was indeed a man of faith. He died at the age of 110, having spent half of that lifetime serving the God whom he worshipped, both faithfully and sincerely. He does not find a personal mention in that great faith chapter, Hebrews 11, but he was present, he was leading Israel when the walls of Jericho fell down, as he referred to in Hebrews 11. He was a man in charge. He was the one who said, march round once every day for six days, and on the seventh day, march round seven times. Be silent, keep your mouth shut, don't blow your trumpets. On the seventh day, you go round seven times, and on the seventh time, you blow your trumpets as hard as you can, and you shout, and the walls will fall down. That's exactly what happened. Joshua was the one who was leading that. And it was to him that the two spies shouted by Rahab reported on their return. Thus we can confidently say that he was a man covered by that statement which appears in Hebrews 11, 6. He that comes to God in faith and confident in existence and knowing that he is rewarder of them that diligently seek him will obtain that in due time. Sometimes fairly short term, but generally it's still not there. It is belief and faith and obedience which causes Yahweh to afford salvation to men and women. Joshua exhibited all three in good measure. How about you? 
We hope you enjoyed that talk. For more downloads, videos, information about what we believe and details of our meeting times, go to our website, ormskirkchristadelphians.org.uk.